Good afternoon, it's Dr. Dan Guerra and the Southern Biochemistry Podcast. Today is 18 August 2023, and this is lecture 13B, not lecture 14, because we only are doing 13 lectures in this biomedical portrait where we are finishing right now a discussion of Alzheimer's disease in aging females, perhaps in association with cholesterol metabolism, specifically steroidogenesis, and then um, estradiol being the major end product we looked at for most of these lectures. So I wanted to give you the rest of the story. And I almost didn't. I almost decided to just move on to a new topic. But it's Friday afternoon. I've got some spare time, and I wrote the lecture. So here we go. Remember that there's a great deal of discussion about the 27-hydroxy cholesterol in previous discussions here. And we also talked a little bit about the 24-hydroxy. I think I mentioned once or twice about the 25. That's what I want to cover off right now. Okay. So 25-hydroxy cholesterol is actually synthesized directly from parent compound cholesterol. Adding, of course, an OH group to the 25 carbon. It's catalyzed by an enzyme that specifically has an iron cofactor, which uh, is involved in the correct uh, hydroxylation reaction and maintaining it at the right valency. So, cholesterol 20, uh, so the enzyme itself, cholesterol 25 hydroxylase, is located in the ER. And it's expressed in many different tissues, including in immune cells, very prominently, actually. And as we shall see, it has some specific roles in immune response. Uh, and the murine model uh, has been studied in the liver and the peritoneal macrophages, primarily. Um, all right, so let's give you more detail. Intracellular. The product of the reaction, intracellular 25 hydroxycholesterol, which is determined by that enzymatic activity solely, um, seems to be regulated by inflammation. Either inflammation induces this response or inflammation becomes um, coincidental with its synthesis. And what was discovered when it was first examined was that 25-hydroxycholesterol was upregulated in LPS-stimulated macrophages. And that enzyme was specifically induced. And it was shown to be independent of that myeloid cell lineage differentiation because it was independent of MID-88, which is myeloid differentiation protein 88. Um, but it is dependent, the 25-hydroxy um, cholesterol synthesis from the hydroxylase is dependent on toll-like receptor for signaling. So based on that particular activity, um, it was studied in dendritic cells and macrophages. And indeed, those cells are prominent for high levels of 25-hydroxy cholesterol. And it seems to be linked to a TRIF 
transcription factor. So that's a tier domain containing adapter-inducing interferon beta uh, transcription factor. And it's and that will the product of that transcription will be, of course, type 1 interferons. That means it's going to signal through the STAT pathway. So 25-hydroxycholesterol as an interferon-stimulated gene product via the STAT pathway has now been fully um, described. And it is secreted from um, these myeloid lineages. So besides that, transactivating the cholesterol 25-hydroxylase in vascular endothelial cells and macrophages has been reported via cholesterol oxidation efflux-related Krupple-like factor four expression. So you can see it's linked to oxidative metabolism and also to uh, the potentiation of inflammation. So it's an interesting uh, cholesterol metabolite. One other thing I could say, an inf inflammatory cytokine, um, many of them, but in particular IL-1-beta and TNF-alpha and IL-6 all promote the expression of the gene product, which is the cholesterol 25-hydroxylase. And again, that's through the canonical STAT1 transcription pathway. It's been seen, uh, for example, turned on in virus-infected human macrophages. Now, activating transcription factor 3, ATF3, it was a negative regulator, interestingly enough, of the transcription of the 25-hydroxylase. Okay? And there's an epigenetic control around that promoter. So I finally got some epigenetics in on these lectures. Now, paper published in Immunity in 2021 talks about the small intestine. We know that the small intestine is the site of much T-cell-dependent IgA response in association with a particular tissue called the Peyer's patches. So the Peyer patches are just lymphoid organs that are associated to the intestinal lumen. We've talked about them in the past. I'm sure you've heard about this in anatomy class. Now, the position of the Peyer's patches puts them right at the level of absorption of dietary and indeed bacterially associated secretion products. So that means these pyropatches are linked directly to an immune response, right, in the small intestine. Anything dietary can induce uh, pyropatches to be activated, as can any kind of local biofilm bacteria that s expresses any kind of potential anti-metabolite that's also going to trigger the payer's patches because of the anatomical proximity. So while metabolites are absorbed from the intestinal lumen, as that's occurring and you're getting digestion, you're getting pancreatic activity, you're getting uh, liver activity, sending in you know, things like bile acids and lipases, et cetera, and proteases and glycosidases, right, during the digestive process. It appears that the Peyer's patches go through an organogenesis 
and that allows for the migration of some of these innate and adaptive immune cells. The adaptive immune cells are going to become important here in a moment. So that means diet plays a role here, particularly in association with B cell differentiation to plasma cells now generating and secreting IgA. That happens in the pyrus patches, both in humans and in mice. Cholesterol absorption from the diet is, of course, restricted to the small intestine, and cholesterol byproducts, such as oxysterols, will directly modulate that Peyer's patch lymphocyte-associated functionality. So it's been suggested that diets high in cholesterol could have an effect there, um, but we know that even without dietary cholesterol, biosynthesis and homeostasis and dysregulation of cholesterol metabolism can occur in all organs in the body. And so the small intestine is not excluded from that. That means you're going to be able to make not only cholesterol in the intestine um, from precursors, you're also going to be able to generate the oxysterols. And then derivatives of those oxysterols, making them either more potently bioactive or less potently bioactive vis-a-vis the immune response. So that's why we're linking this all together. B-cell activity is immune response. And it seems that this 25-hydroxycholesterol is a really significant product in, in regulating that prior patch activity, particularly with the B-lymphocytes. Now, we know that the 25-hydroxycholesterol can also be converted to a 7-alpha-25-hydroxycholesterol, and that particular compound has affinity for a particular very significant G-protein-coupled receptor. It's called GPR-183. It's also known as Epstein-Barr-12 because it's associated with Epstein-Barr virus. Now. When you have 7-alpha-25-hydroxycholesterol, that will bind to that receptor, GPR-183, also known as EB12. The 25-hydroxycholesterol does not bind to it, so only the 7-alpha-25, right? So a little bit more about this uh, EB12 receptor. It was first recognized upon uh, upon studying Epstein-Barr viral infection. It's localized and associated with the primary B lymphocytes. Gene is predicted to encode that G protein coupled receptor, and it is related, at least in terms of uh, amino acid sequence, to a thrombin receptor. It's probably a part of that family. The gene is expressed when when it's detected that B lymphocyte cell lines and lymphoid tissues are activated, but there is no association of this EB12 receptor and any of these oxysterols in association specifically with T lymphocytes in the pyropatches, although T lymphocytes do associate there. This is a B cell mediated response, what I'm saying. So this EB12, this receptor, 
will drive the migration of multiple immune cell types. And the 25-hydroxycholesterol is necessary while it binds to that receptor to cause this migration. Besides that, the 25-hydroxycholesterol has other biological activity um, because it plays, again, an intermediary for uh, ligand production of that 7-alpha um, 25-hydroxycholesterol, which has not functioned as a ligand to that EB12 receptor. So that means when that reaction occurs, the 7-alpha hydroxylation, that now removes the activation of the EB12 receptor, which, as I said, is all linked up to the B lymphocyte production of IgA. See, This is really important because it means that ultimately you can compare the product, the precursor product relationship of 25-hydroxycholesterol because, it may, so let me just say this, macrophages and macrophages 25 hydroxycholesterol is a potent inhibitor of sterile biosynthesis and a higher suppressive potency even than cholesterol itself so you know that cholesterologenesis via the srebp um, protein complex and the golgi the er the whole mobility thing which i'm going to cover here in a minute just to remind you that's linked to levels of free cholesterol and cholesterol depletion in membranes, particularly ER membrane, the Golgi. So it seems like that whole system is regulated feedback by high levels of cholesterol, free membrane cholesterol too. And the second aspect, it's also inhibited by 25-hydroxycholesterol. Okay. So when intracellular levels of 25-hydroxycholesterol decrease when they go down because of that 7-alpha-hydroxylation, uh, the SREBP moves to the Golgi. When it goes to the Golgi, it's cleaved by proteases, and then it's, then it's fully activated as a TF, as a transcription factor. So very interesting, right? So 25-hydroxycholesterol has been shown to be associated with blocking bacterial infection of the epithelium, bacterial pore-forming toxins are blocked, viral growth, the, metabol the, the maturation of IgM to IgA is blocked by 25-hydroxycholesterol. I think I already mentioned that to you. 25-hydroxycholesterol also turns on interleukin-6, but it blocks interleukin-1-beta. So there's a great deal of association of these, this particular oxysterol in the associated complex of cholesterologenesis, steroidogenesis, binding to the receptors, and then ultimately the inflammatory response. You see how this is all linked into Alzheimer's disease. Because any 25-hydroxycholesterol in the central nervous system is going to play a role in regulating the immune response. There will be primarily microglia and then any B lymphocytes that make it through the blood-brain barrier, such as in the aging female brain. Okay, so now you've got that story. So let me see what time it is here. Yeah, we're doing well. Okay, good. 
Okay, now let me finish this all off now. When mammalian cells are depleted of sterols, that cyclopentanophenanthrene ring structure, that ring structure, SR, and which causes the membrane width to increase. When cholesterol is in a membrane, it causes the width of that membrane to increase because it organizes the acyl chains and basically keeps them from high levels of movement. And because of that, cholesterol makes the membrane essentially a wider domain. Okay, And that's basically how these SREBPs are recognized. The whole protein cleavage is associated with the thickness or thinness of that membrane, exposing a proteolytic site. This sound familiar to us? This is canonical biochemistry now. Came way back from uh, the 80s and 90s. Right? Okay. So, mammalian cells are depleted of sterols. SREBPs are activated by two sequential proteolytic cleavage events, I guess I'll call them. It'll release an amino terminal transcription factor from the membrane, and that transcription factor will go to the nucleus, and it will activate transcription of all of the sterile response element target genes, which are going to be involved in low density lipoprotein receptor to bring in cholesterol into that cell, and then all the cholesterologenic enzymes. Okay. Remember that? First cleavage occurs in the luminal loop of SREBP at a place called site 1, and it's catalyzed by a transmembrane protease. Remember, that's a site 1 protease called S1P. And the cleavage by that enzyme generate, uh, generates a shortened version of the protein, right? So cleavage by this 1,052 amino acid subtilized and related protease occurs after the consensus sequence arginine XX leucine. That's RXXL, and then it separates the molecules to basically two halves. That uh, S1P is not restricted to proteins involved just in cholesterol homeostasis. It is a protease or convertase that cleaves and activates other transcription factors. In fact, those involving endoplasmic reticulum stress. You've heard of these proteins before, the CREB and the ATF6. And for CREB, it's the CREB-H. Um, what else can I say? That, that convertase, that's the S1P, site 1 protease, is also involved in processing of Lassa virus glycoprotein precursor. And that's required for uh, the infection of the, uh, and the successful infection of that virus. So there's a long storied history. Following cleavage by the S1P, the amino terminal domain of SREBP, maybe that's going to end up being a mature transcription factor. It, that, the, the amino terminus remains bound to the membrane until a 519 amino acid membrane bound zinc metalloprotease called S2P or site 2 protease cleaves that SREBP within the first transmembrane domain. The liberated transcription factor will now go to the nucleus and activate that SRE uh, uh, transcriptome. Sterols, therefore, control the activation of the SREBPs because they all regulate around the cleavage at site one. When cholesterol accumulates cleavage by the cleavage of SREBP by S1P is blocked. 
because of the membrane not exposing that proteolytic site. Okay, but the cleavage by S2P isn't regulated by sterols. It doesn't have to because uh, the cleavage by the second protease convertase to make the mature transcription factor requires the prior cleavage by the site one protease. You see, so it's a very um, efficient system. Okay. So what are the products of these two sterile response element binding proteins? For sterile response element binding protein one, some of the products are fatty acid synthase, long chain fatty acyl elongase, sterocoe desaturase, and the initial reactions for glycerolipid synthesis. Um, and that will generate, of course, monoacylglycerol 3 phosphate, right? So that's the glycerol phosphate acyl transferase, all those genes. Now, the other isoform, SREBP2, has a host of enzymes that are turned on that is transcribed and then translated. But these enzymes then will function. Once you went through that whole cleavage, ER and the Golgi system, the genes which are going to be expressed include acetoacetyl-CoA thiolase, which will take acetyl-CoA converted to acetoacetyl-CoA, HMG-CoA reductase, which will make HMG-CoA, and I mean HMG synthase, which will make HMG-CoA, and then the HMG-CoA reductase, which we know makes mevalonic acid. And now check this out. Transcription of all of those early gene products for cholesterologenesis. Mevalonic kinase, phosphomevalonic kinase, mevalonate pyrophosphate decarboxylase, geronyl pyrophosphate synthase, isopentanyl pyrophosphate isomerase, pharnaceal pyrophosphate synthase, and squalene synthase. Then once you make squalene, the other the enzymes, all those enzymes that finish the system, the squalene, the epoxidase, the lanosterol synthase, CYP51, the lathosterol oxidase, and that last reaction step we just talked about, uh, that finally converts the desmestro, uh, desmesterol to cholesterol. That uh, reaction is also an enzyme which is transcribed and then translated because of SREBP, okay? So I think that's all I want to say about that. You get the idea now. Anyways, that enzyme was 7-dehydroxyglycerol reductase, right? Okay. Well, now, um, yeah, I think I'm about to check the time. Let's see here. No, we're still doing good. Okay, good. I want to switch now to a paper. Now, that just gave you this whole flavor of what's going on um, in terms of regulation of cholesterogenesis and the oxysterols. I wanted to bring that into focus because this is always occurring irregardless of what occurs in the CNS and the aging female CNS postmenopausally. Now, what about the molecular interactions between malignant cells and the immune system during cancer development? We talked about this before. There are three steps involved, elimination, equilibrium, and escape. Those are the three E's of cancer known as immunoediting. So malignant cells develop and involve a complex, interconnected TME. That's a tumor microenvironment. 
And then within that macroenvironment, you're going to have a variety of immune cells and stromal cells, as well as whatever associated endothelial cells and fibroblasts. Remember that those fibroblasts are going to be involved as well as the endothelial cells in inflammation. So studying that tumor microenvironment, we've done this before in lecture, gives you an idea of what's going on in T lymphocytes, regulating potential destruction of the early phases of cancer. So you get an infiltration of CDA positive T cells. Remember, some of those can be NKs or cytotoxic T lymphocytes. And remember the, 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 the movement and presence of M1 to M2 polarized macrophages. And you know that M2 macrophages are a negative prognostic marker for most cancers. All right. Now, a lot of immunotherapy out there, immune check checkpoint blockade, you heard me talk about. And there's a whole deal of monoclonal antibodies associated with that. And the main targets for the immunotherapy, also known as ICB, immune checkpoint blockade, is trying to target CTLA4, that, that protein on the surface of the cell, uh, of, the, uh, of the T lymphocyte, and PD1, the program death one with the ligand, program death ligand one, right? So immune therapy, immune checkpoint therapy, ICP, is essential for um, a lot of cancers these days. A lot of markers have been suggested to associate with ICB. You have this program death, program death ligand. Expression of both of those is increased in melanoma, and that's because of a program uh, studying it at the level of program death one blockade program death ligand one expression tumor cells tumor cells generated then bind to the receptor and shut down t lymphocytes and therefore promote malignancies right it was shown in melanoma it was shown in non-small cell lung cancer it's also been shown in many different kinds of tumor um, phenotypes okay now Melanoma, most, most, most aggressive malignant skin cancer we've talked about. Chemotherapies usually target things um, like with the BRAF system. We talked about that. But those drugs, while they're really effective, there are V600 BRAF mutated melanomas. Melanomas are amongst the most immunogenic tumors that have been studied. And so immune checkpoint blockade therapy um, has been considered because of all this immune cell association in the tumor microenvironment. So they've been using PD-1, et cetera, all that ICB I just went through. There are gender differences in the progression of melanoma. That's why I'm bringing it up. Women show a lower incidence and lower risk of, of lymph node invasion and visceral metastasis compared to men. Okay, why is that? Estrogen, estrogen receptor signaling influences the tumor microenvironment. We talked about this beginning of this lecture series. Because it and we know that we know that's the case because ER signaling affects the efficacy of immune checkpoint blockade. And we know inhibition of estrogen signaling influences intratumoral macrophage polarization in melanoma 
therefore increasing ICB efficacy. So blocking estrogen would promote anti-tumor immunity. And that's the whole point I wanted to bring up to you. So you have to block estrogen, uh, estrogen excuse me, to, block, to promote the anti-tumor immunity, particularly when using ICB drugs. So if a woman takes hormone therapy and it's in the form of estrogen or estrogen mimetics, that's another case in point where cancer can be promoted because of the hormone therapy, which is considered a possible way to decrease the progression to AD in the female brain postmenopausal. Okay, so that's that's the take-home message I really wanted to get to right now. I'm finally finished with this series of lectures. I wanted to get to the point that at the level of pharmacotherapy, if you're agonizing the estrogen system for the CNS for so-called neuroprotection, at the same time, you could be corrupting the tumor microenvironment in multiple types of tumors, including melanoma, which seems to be protected because of this whole um, estrogen decline in females. If you add estrogen as a hormone therapy, that could exacerbate the tumor microenvironment to override the Im immune checkpoint inhibitors and actually promote a very aggressive cancer in the aging female population. That's not something you'd want to do. Okay, so once again, there's a caveat to understanding how these immunotherapies or these uh, hormone therapies must be administered with great care by the physician, by the medical community. And that's what I wanted to get you to finally finish. Dan Guerra, Authentic Biochemistry, 18823. Bye for now.